Are you ready, Sean? I'm ready, Brendan. Let's do this. Well, welcome to There and Back Again. And again. I'm Sean. And I'm Brendan. And today we are diving into having a little bit of closure on the Dark Knight trilogy, which is which is sad in a way, but after watching this film, I think we can both agree that the the film itself is very satisfying. There's a lot here to be to be happy about with the way that Christopher Nolan and his team brought this to an end. And and there is definitely as we've observed through talking with each other about this, there's a lot to unpack here. So we are definitely not surprised at the length of this episode. And we are, I think we're really excited to kind of jump into this experience of watching one of the, I would say one of the Batman films that people aren't terribly familiar with because the Dark Knight itself is so memorable. Batman Begins has its place as being the origin story. So wrapping up with The Dark Knight Rises, not as many people recall a lot of things from this film other than the fact that Bane is the main villain and you have Tom Hardy with his with his exploration of that character here. So so yeah, we're going to dive right in here and Brendan if you can kind of take us through obviously like thinking about the 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 year of the release of this one, the anticipation that built for this one but also your experience with with viewing this one for the first time. Yeah, you know you're right. This one does kind of feel like the lost edition of this trilogy if you will because you know the dark knight obviously gets talked about so much you know there's a four-year gap between the dark knight and this one in in real time eight years within the you know the movies but there was a a, still a pretty good amount of hype for this one you know knowing it was going to be the the finale to the trilogy and the the tom hardy casting for bane and then i remember like when the trailers came out and everybody's like you can't understand a word bane says because he's got the mask on so then they kind of had to fix some of that stuff. So there was some some of that, you know, publicity around the movie was not all positive leading up to it. And of course, everybody's wondering, uh, what are they going to do, you know, following up from The Dark Knight with the Joker and Heath Ledger obviously had died. So they couldn't, you know, bring that character back. So, yeah, this was released in July of 2012, July 20th. I remember what we did was we watched like it would have been on a Wednesday night. We watched Batman Begins. And then Thursday night, we watched The Dark Knight and then went to the theater to watch the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises. And I think this this must have been the last time that I did a midnight showing. You know, yeah. for, for a long time, yeah. that was like the thing to do. And I loved it. And that was probably the last time it happened, though, just because, you know, mm. adulting and then having kids shortly after this movie came out. Ah, uh, Yes. So, yeah, but it was a fun experience. Uh, I remember just feeling really happy and satisfied, as you said, with the movie, especially because, you know, I know this movie has some issues. It's not perfect. There are plot holes or whatever. But I know you and I have this in common that I think, I mean, I, I don't want to totally speak for both of us, but certainly for myself, and I do think you'll agree, is probably the most important thing for us when it comes to concluding something like a trilogy or a TV series or whatever is closure for the characters after you've been with them mm-hmm. for so long, however many seasons of a show or however many installments of a trilogy or, a, you know, a bigger movie series. We want to see how the characters end up. And I think we will also both agree that in this case, 
it was a it was done in a very satisfying way for a lot of the characters that we love. For sure. Not only for the characters you love, but for knowing that, you know, the team that was behind it with with Nolan leading the way and seeing this as I remember uh, some of the press around this one was this was the first time that an individual director had taken the Batman story to a trilogy and brought it to a close. Yeah. So that was really cool to see and him tie up the 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 loose ends or tie up the storylines in that way and be able to see like, no, there's nothing coming after this. There's no more anybody stepping in to finish the character or bring in different villains or do different things with this. But the fact that it was coming to a close for the whole team. Yeah. And it was not just for Nolan, but for like for Christian Bale and, right. you know, uh, I, I, I don't think you can't say Michael Caine. Cause if I remember right, the same actor played Alfred and all four of like the, the Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Yeah, I, I believe so. The same actor. I can't remember his name. So, but, you know, like Killian Murphy became the first actor to play the same Batman villain. In multiple than, films, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that there were a couple couple things like that. But, yes, certainly for Nolan and, and Bale, for their, you know, their working together for these three films over the course of, well, seven years as far as when they were released, probably, you know, maybe a little more than that from the time of casting and, and shooting and all that. Right. But yeah, it was it was nice to be able to see a trilogy being seen through by the same people writing it and directing it and acting and all that stuff, which you don't always see. Right. Yeah. And so so for me, for this one, the experience was a little different was I did watch Batman Begins. I did watch The Dark Knight. And prior to seeing this film, but I had to wait a little bit because at the time my, my fiance was doing an internship in Texas and I had made her a promise before she left that I wouldn't see the movie until she got back. I didn't really in reality calculate how much time that would mean. I thought I was being chivalrous and honorable and, and keeping a promise, which I was, it was great, it worked, it worked. but yeah, I didn't realize it would be three weeks after the movie came out and you and I, as with most films that we see in theaters, especially ones that we are both hyped about, we typically try to see it at the same time so that immediately after we can begin dissecting that thing and having conversations and sharing jokes and just going back and forth with it. And this one, you were you were so great about you know keeping everything under the lid for three weeks, waiting for me to see it. And so I remember just, you know, it was exciting, obviously, to to have my my fiance at the time back from her internship and I was so glad that she was there but in the back of my mind as I was waiting for her at the airport I was like I cannot wait tomorrow when I finally get to see the dark knight rises this is gonna finally come to fruition so yeah right. it was a it was a journey for me as well so yeah that but, wasn't easy not being able to talk about this particular movie for so long um especially because I you know thinking back this is 2012 so this was only a couple of years after we had graduated college right so we've been living you know apart from each other after we graduated for just a couple of years. So there, there probably weren't a whole lot of more movies like this that would have been like so, so big for us between you and I just to want to talk about, you know, probably Inception. Right. That was right after we graduated that summer. Um, but even that one, I don't fully remember as far as like you and I talking about it and breaking it down because it's still it was not on the level of like a Batman movie at the time. No, this no, it was like wanting to talk about it. Right. It was at like at the beginning of like the Nolan fandom to where it was like, oh, this guy is going beyond Batman Begins. And so yeah. we definitely had a lot of a little bit of hype from Inception, but I don't remember being as drawn 
to talking about it as much afterwards as, as this one. So you're right. Yeah. And we've certainly talked about it a lot since and, you know, can't wait to break that one down in a future episode, but Oh, for sure. For now we, uh, we'll return to the dark Knight rises, which unlike the previous two installments in the trilogy got zero Oscar nominations, no love, let alone any wins. So, you know, and again, I know critically this movie was, not as well received and you know we'll talk about a lot of that stuff throughout the episode this was speaking of the oscar noms you know the guy that got nominated for both of the first two movies wally fister for cinematography this was his last movie as the director of photography for christopher nolan after they had been longtime collaborators because he went on to a directing career which didn't exactly go super great no Nope. And from what I remember reading is that since then, a lot of what he's done is he's directed uh, commercials and advertisements. Oh, interesting. So, I mean, maybe that's what he really wants to do. Maybe he loves doing that or maybe he's having to do that. But either way, he did a great job with all the films that he's done with, with Nolan. You know, yeah. I know he did, he did Inception and he did the, the Dark Knight films. Yeah. But it doesn't really, I mean, just to be fair, talk about Nolan overall it doesn't seem like he struggled since losing Wally Fister there. No, certainly not. Yeah, especially considering the next movie was Interstellar. You know, the cinematography was certainly not an issue with that movie. Mm -mm. It's incredible. And another one that I can't wait to break down in a future episode. Yeah. So in Gotham City, we're fast forward eight years from the events of The Dark Knight. And we get this little glimpse of, uh, which really, it's flashback eight years ago. Gordon's, you know, brief, showing a brief snippet of, of Gordon's remarks at Dent's funeral. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I love the way he closes that just with, I believed in Harvey Dent, you know, because it does set up what's happening in present day Gotham eight years later. With the Dent Act and everything that's enacted to, to right. curb organized crime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do love the way that this one starts out, especially, obviously, you know, the, the thing that we... I feel like people might get tired of us talking about, but obviously we don't get tired of talking about is the score of, of these ones and oh. just how how hearing a certain part of the score calls back to a lot of different things and there's so many so many motifs and so many different overtures over over stuff that you can just kind of gives you a feeling whenever you when you hear a certain part. And so in this one, obviously like as soon as the the production company logos start coming up and the score is over that intro right there you know, immediately gets you excited for what, what you know is coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sets the tone. And we've got another quintessential Nolan scene where they're pulling off this massive stunt with these planes, you know, uh, we get our introduction to Bane. And it's very similar to the opening of the Joker. You know, the Joker has a mask on and the guys that he's with are talking about the Joker, not knowing that he's right there with them. And then in this one, you've got the guys that have the hoods on. One of right. them is Bane that we don't know that yet. And the the guy, you know, Littlefinger, I can't remember his, his real name, but he's most well known for, you know, uh, Game of Thrones. He's talking to them about Bane, you know, not knowing Bane is right there. So it's a very, very similar intro to The Dark Knight. But obviously it's it's got that, as you were saying, the score... And the chanting that always that's kind of like the Bane motif throughout the movie. Right. Uh, which is a, a cool it's always fun when you get a new character and hearing the new 
parts of the score for the new character. You know, you get a lot of familiar motifs like the Batman theme and whatnot, but then you always get the the new ones that come in for new characters. And you know, this was a really really cool one that really, like you said, sets the tone. Yeah, it wasn't as breathtaking, I would say, as the other prologue from The Dark Knight, but it was a very very cool reveal and a very you know a, a great stunt to to show. Yeah, I do. I do remember again, just like I am Legend, this prologue was attached to a film in IMAX as well, and and again was the only reason that I saw this particular film in IMAX, even though it was a it was a fine experience to see it. But I think it was it was attached to um, one of the Mission Impossible films. Oh, okay. And so you know another another film I could have waited until we got home to see, you know, but I had to see the prologue, so I remember going <laughs> to see that in IMAX and thinking like I can walk out now, but yeah, I stayed, but. Anyway, and do you remember like was the the Bane voice thing was that a problem even in the IMAX prologue that you saw? Yes, yeah, I remember a lot of the complaints came from that prologue, and it was true. Like it was very muffled. Yeah, it, I you know even just watching it just as recently as it did, it's so clear now. Yeah, and I feel like they've done a lot, especially after the press and everything, like you said, to to fix that, but. Yeah, and in, in the prologue itself in IMAX, it was you had to kind of struggle to hear it. It felt like there was like a lot of noise over it. So yeah, so I mean, if you listen close, you could still understand what he was saying. I felt personally added to the mystery of the character, but I think the clarity is fine too. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of times where if you couldn't really understand his dialogue, it would have made it tough to to follow what was going on. Right, especially if he's explaining something and it's not like a one liner that he's trying to get out. Yeah, I love the the way they. You know, they they reveal that it's him before they just with his voice before you see his face, mm-hmm. you know, unless you just kind of see how how big he is. Then you might think, oh, that could be Bane just because his shoulders are so massive, even right. with the hood on. But, you know, the the guy who is, he's, I think he's CIA. Um, yep. And he's like threatening to to shoot the guys. And, he, you know, he's like, perhaps he's wondering why you would shoot a man before throwing him out of the plane. Perhaps he's wondering why someone would shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. Then he comes mm-hmm. with the mask off and you see see yep. Bane there. Yeah, that was a that was a cool reveal. Very yeah, Bane himself, like the reveal of what the mask is and what it looks like, I thought was very cool to be able to see. Because, you know, I mean, you've seen Bane in the cartoons and the animated series, and you've seen Bane previously in Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. Right. And just, you know, again, so cartoony, so outlandish that it's like, it's not really even believable. This is just trying to bring a comic book to life to where, again, with the Nolan series here, we have something that could have been concocted in reality as a way to to use it as a mask, but also as a life-saving device, you know, or a strengthening thing. So I really liked the, again, again, the approach that they did with keeping everything somewhat attempting to be based in reality. Yeah, there's a few other, you know, moments in this intro scene, you know, you get the, um, I I don't remember exactly how it comes up, but, you know, he's saying that the CIA guy's talking to Bane, and he's, uh, Bane's like, you know, it'd be quite painful, and he's like, you're a big guy, for you. Yeah, I think he's like, yeah, what happens if I take that mask off? Yes, that's right. Would be quite painful. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. If I pull that off, will you die? It would be extremely painful. You're a big guy. For you. And then, um, was getting caught part of your plan? Of course. 
Of course. I mean, what did what did you think overall of Tom Hardy's voice? I I liked it for the most part. There were a couple moments later on in the movie where it's like it kind of changed a little bit, which I found mm. slightly odd. But overall, I liked it. I read that he he based it off of like some either Irish or British like bare knuckle fighter from a long time ago or something. Okay, Indian fighter or something. So he did have you know some sort of like reference point for it. You know, I think Bane in the comics and even in like in the Arkham like the video games, Bane is like of I think Hispanic uh, descent, which obviously they didn't go with for this movie. You know, in the Batman and the Robin, I don't think he ever talks. He's just kind of like an animal, basically, in that movie. Right, yeah. He's just muscle. Yeah. So we had an interesting contrast, you know, with Joker and Bane that we see, you know, Joker's whole thing was like, you know, he doesn't, he's not a guy with a plan, even though we see that that's not necessarily true, whereas Bane is kind of the opposite. He's got lots of plans. He's very calculated, yeah. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is our plan. And I mean, especially that line, you know, was getting caught part of your plan, of course. Like, and he's not, he's not playing anything terribly safe. You know, everything is playing out exactly how, how him and obviously, as we'll see, the League of Shadows have, have mapped it out to go. Yeah. And they've been in the stages for a long time. Not like the, like the Joker, who is sort of depending on chaos. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I, I like the voice. I like the mask. I like everything that kind of made it sort of similar to how they did the Joker, where like the origin isn't really known. You know, they show a little bit of how he became in need of a mask, you know, later on in the film. Yeah. But you still don't know, like, where did where did he originally come from? What nationality is he? Like, yeah. so much so much obscurity and mystery around him still. Yeah, any, anything that happens for him before he was in the pit is, is unknown. Although, it, you know, based on what he says later on when he talks about how he never, you know, he, he was born in the darkness. Like, maybe he was born in the prison and, you know... He was stuck there for however long. I, I at least, I guess I assume that's what he meant by that. You know, of course, up until towards the end of the movie, we're led to believe that the child is him. Right. Yeah. Um, which, who we know that child was born in the pit, but then we, you know, realized that he was not, and he was already an adult when, when that kid at least escaped. Maybe right. he was younger when the kid was born. So yeah, it is is a little, again kind of mysterious. And we don't even know exactly where the pit is. Right. You know, could be somewhere somewhere in either like Africa, Northern Africa, Middle East. You know, it kind of looks like desert-ish, but yeah. hard to say for sure. But going back to the, the plane scene, you know, we get it's the doctor is there and he's the one that's kind of the mastermind behind the the nuclear reactor that they're, you know, eventually going to try to use as a bomb. You know, they do the little blood transfusion so that their his DNA is found at the the wreckage and then they all he makes the, you know, the one guy, he makes him stay and is like, "They'll expect one of us in the wreckage, brother." They expect one of us in the wreckage, brother. I didn't remember this, but the guy doesn't fight it at all. He's like, "Oh, okay." Like, yeah i'll just chill here and crash with the plane no big deal <laughs> right you're saying the fire rises all right that's fine yeah right so then of course the the plane crashes and they they are able to take the doctor with them i actually i read that the the plane that they use and it might have been the smaller plane the plane that they start in not the bigger plane that they 
they get a weigh in like mm-hmm. crashed for real like a year later or something like that oh really yeah it was not 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 great apparently like the pilot and co-pilot were both killed oh kind of sad but foreshadowing yeah and of course you know there's a lot of sadness around this movie because of the the shooting that happened in colorado you know that opening again yeah yeah that was another like you know with dark knight you've got heath ledger's death and then with this one not until after the movie was released but very shortly after with the you know the shooting in aurora i think aurora colorado yeah obviously yep horrible and I remember there was the Gangster Squad movie was coming out, and the, right, the trailers they, for that were being shown before this movie, and they had to change some of that because there was like a lot of gun violence being shown in the trailer for Gangster Squad. Well, there's very specifically a scene in the trailer where they are shooting from behind the movie theater screen. Yes, that's right. In, into a movie theater, which is really weird, the fact that it was attached to that movie and then yeah, shown. It's it. That kind of stuff happens sometimes. Right. The my favorite band, Dream Theater, they released a live recording from a show in New York, and th- the release was coming out like September 11th because it was a Tuesday. You know, albums like CDs always came out on Tuesdays, mm-hmm. and part of it had to do with like the artwork from the album. But the the cover of their live album had a picture of the skyline of New York with like fire behind it. Ooh. So then that they had to go into like panic mode, like you know, how are we gonna fix this because obviously you know it's just a horrible coincidence but right things like that happen seems like all the time somehow it's weird yeah yeah and i i think the way that the production companies handled that afterwards and 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 nolan and christian bale himself you know immediately afterwards after that shooting at the theater they immediately went to the town of aurora and visited the victims in the hospital and made you know made statements obviously condemning but yeah really just taking attention away from the release and the movie itself and their work and really just placing it onto the victims and everything that happened there, which I thought was, which was really good of them to do. You know, they, mm-hmm. they didn't care that their film was affected or maybe somewhat briefly, you know, the box office was tainted a little bit, but they put the attention where it needed to be. So really selfless of them. Yeah. So at the end of the plane scene, then we go back to, we are now in present day Gotham. You know, we kind of see, I like how you see, uh, kind of a bird's eye view of the rebuilt Wayne Manor. And you can kind of see it like how it kind of relates to where Gotham city is. You know, of course we're getting new views of Gotham city. A lot of this movie, the Gotham stuff was filmed in New York this time, as opposed to Chicago and then some Pittsburgh as well, which they, I read a quote from Emma Thomas, who is produces all of Nolan's movies and also happens to be married to him. Um, but they, you know, kind of good connection. They chose because they were like, we shot every inch of Chicago. So like now we went to New York and Pittsburgh to kind of just help show the scope of how massive Gotham really is. Right. And, you know, another thing to note, and, you know, in this scene in particular is probably the only place where it would have made much sense to mention the Joker, but, you know, they don't, they don't even touch that at all. You know, out of respect to Heath Ledger, they didn't even mention him Mm -hmm. in passing, you know, even in, you know, talking about Harvey Dent, because obviously the Joker essentially made Harvey Dent or Two-Face and kind of led to his demise. You know, I just thought that was an interesting, interesting choice, you know, because we really didn't know for sure before the movie, like if they would even mention him. We know he wouldn't be in the movie, but I know they, they had considered using like deleted scenes or some CGI and stuff to have the Joker appear 
but they obviously made the decision just to completely avoid that, which I, I do think makes sense. You know, certainly it's not like you miss there being any mention of him because it is eight years later. You know, right? It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There was there was really no way to I guess fit it in, especially because what ended up happening to the Joker at the end of the film, despite Heath Ledger's passing, is really left kind of up to the viewer. You know, did he did he get sentenced to Arkham? Did something else happen? Is he in prison? Is he in a federal prison, I don't know, who knows, you know, but it's not really necessary for this story right here. And it has been eight years, you know? Yeah. So with the amount of time that's passed, it's not nine months like it was between Batman Begins and Dark Knight, eight yeah. years. There's, there's a lot that has transpired that pretty much the hope would be, especially for the city of Gotham, that the Joker is kind of in the back of everybody's minds now. Like he's, we're not really thinking that we're past that. The dent act has happened. And Obviously, they're mentioning that here in this scene where they're commemorating Dent, you know, yep. at at Wayne Manor. And then they're making mention of, you know, Wayne's nowhere to be found. He's kind of exiled himself, holed up as a recluse, and there's always rumors about him. Mm-hmm. And then we get, you know, we get intros to some new characters here that are going to play a role. Yeah, we see John Daggett. I think Daggett, it's Daggett. Yeah. Sometimes it sounds like they say Daggert, but I'm pretty sure it's Daggett. It is, yeah. It's Daggett, um, yeah. Played by Ben Mendelsohn, who, as far as I can remember, this was my first time seeing him in anything. I think his career felt like it kind of took off after this movie because I felt like after seeing The Dark Knight, then I remember seeing him in a bunch of other stuff. Um, we're like, oh yeah, that's the guy that was in The Dark Knight, and uh, you know, I think he's really good. I really like him. Pretty much anything I've seen him in, I think he he does a really good job. We see the the congressman who is ends up he's the guy that ends up playing thomas wayne in the the joker movie Mm -hmm. with joaquin phoenix and then you know we do see that little glimpse of who we assume is bruce wayne just kind of his silhouette on the roof of just watching the mansion yeah watching everything that's going on and then of course we get uh mayor richard alpert and uh, (laughs) we call him that yeah we see you know gordon again and he's getting ready to deliver a speech, uh, but then he changes his mind. Right. Yeah. It seems like he's about to, or at least trying to pry through some amount of, of guilt and necessity to kind of maybe close some things up, possibly reveal actually what happened to Dent and withhold that truth because of everything that's happened because of Dent's passing and the Dent acting like that and not wanting to maybe hurt anybody any further. It's definitely, I mean, they definitely show how much that withholding that truth and living in that lie for the past eight years, how much that's really cost him. Yeah. They mentioned that like his wife and kids are gone, like they left. Right. So he's basically alone now and he probably still just kind of like he did eight years ago. He probably doesn't have a whole lot of friends on the police force. You know, I mean, the police force has obviously been cleaned up quite a bit, but he's still, you know, he's the commissioner, so he's kind of the authority figure. And so, yeah, it's kind of sad to see where he's at. He's basically had to, to live with this secret alone because you know the the one guy he was in on it with has not been around for eight years right i mean what do they say that i mean they're kind of mumbling and talking about the fact that he's no longer going to have his job in a short amount of time and that he's he's simply viewed as like like they say like a war hero but that gotham is in this deck not decade but time of peace yeah as, as they think yeah it's like they need another a new face of the police department and yeah, they talk about like they, you know, they're like, does he even look at the crime numbers? Like he's just still like, he's always on edge. Like 
he's not he's afraid that everything's going to come crashing down at any point and yeah they say he's a war hero this is peacetime like they need somebody else to lead the police department in this new this new era but of course gordon you know, ends up being being correct to be as still sort of paranoid and watchful as he is because right stuff's about to go down well especially with everything that he's seen and experienced like why wouldn't he be you know well, he knows the things that can change or pop up at a moment's notice so yeah the other ones seem to be kind of naive or too hopeful or you know just not having the proper perspective on the fact that like you did one thing but something else could come up that we have no idea nobody knew the joker was coming either so yeah um, but yeah so we i mean we have a lot of you know especially in this one scene character recalls but then also a lot of new characters like you said with mendelssohn as daggett and then the congressman and then we have Anne hathaway stepping in here into a, yeah. a new role that i'm sure I don't. I honestly don't recall specifically, but I'm sure there was a lot of speculation, maybe doubt, things going on in the press with this role as well. Yeah, I don't really recall that either. Um, but I do know that I, she's like one of the best parts of this movie, in my opinion. I think she's really, really good as Selena Kyle. You know, they never. She never gets called Catwoman. Um, you know, she's kind of alluded, alluded to. She obviously has like the the goggles that like when they're pushed back above her head, they look like the cat ears and she kind of wears right. sort of leathery like black suit. It obviously looks very much like Catwoman, but you know, there's like the articles that you see when they're doing the like looking up her history that say like cat burglar or whatever. Jewish. Right. But yeah, I, I thought Anne Hathaway was was really good in this movie. Yeah, her her casting, I you know, I remember it, it just to me it made sense. She mm -hmm. she looks the part for one. She's a great actress. Yeah. And so if you're going to put somebody in this role who's not just going to be a caricature of it, I I think she was already well respected and could pull it off in in a way that, you know, kind of Heath Ledger did with the Joker. Not not to that extreme, and there probably weren't as many doubts about the casting when it was announced, but she really just kind of leaned into the fact that Catwoman isn't supposed to overpower the movie. You know, she's a she's a living in the shadows type of figure as well. She's not to be taking any kind of mantle on. She just kind of is her her allegiances are ambiguous. And so right. I think Anne Hathaway played those type of two sides very well. Yeah, it's like her thing is she's generally just like she's looking out for number one and she doesn't she she plays whatever side is going to benefit her the most. And she, you know, she she will switch switch sides at any point if it's going to benefit her and the other element to like the bruce selena or batman catwoman relationship is a lot of times they're sort of like a sort of like an under underlying romantic element between them or sort of like that sort of romantic tension and you do have that a little bit between her and bruce wayne and towards the end between her and batman too although at that point she she knows that bruce is batman right but, yeah but they don't like over sexualize her at the same time like it's like he's not just attracted to her because she you know like shows a lot of cleavage in her leather suit or whatever like a lot of previous catwoman iterations have right it's just like they are, like they have plenty of conversations as selena and bruce where it kind of it makes sense you know we talked a lot about how rachel and bruce's romance never felt quite earned right i yep. did feel like this one was earned well enough at least where it's like when you see the two of them together at the very end it makes sense it's not like it doesn't feel like it's totally coming out of left field and it doesn't feel 
totally unearned. Right. I, I really like how they handled the whole Bruce, Selena, and then you know Batman, Catwoman dynamic. Yeah, a lot of the dynamic between the two of them, whether whether it was Selena and Bruce or Catwoman and Batman, I was about to say Batwoman, was very. It just felt like they had an understanding of each other in in those ways. You know, they they saw each other at, at weak moments, and then they saw each other's strengths, and they just kind of had that that understanding of one another and and who they wanted to be and who they were currently and what could be done to kind of help each other out. You know, so like you said, that felt that kind of feels a lot more earned rather than being a childhood friend or, you know, a a momentary romance between between him and Rachel in the previous films. Right. When you see all the you see enough character development, even just of her character in this one movie, and it's a long movie where obviously you see where she ends up, where she makes she she decides to do the right thing, even at the risk, even at her own risk, like she goes back to help Bruce even though she could have just left like she said she was going to. And, you know, so it's like, even in just this one movie, you see enough character development for her to to make it more understandable why Bruce would be attracted to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did. I like her better in this movie than in Interstellar. Not that she was bad in Interstellar, but I just, I don't like her character as well in that one as I do in this one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of, obviously, a lot of differences and there's different ways to use to use Catwoman itself in the story. Her character in Interstellar, you're right, isn't. I wouldn't say as it's hard for me to be cr- uh, critical of writers because I'm not a writer, and so I, I don't know how mm-hmm. difficult it is to write characters. But I would say that her character in that is not as well written or as strongly written as as it is in this one. Even though Anne yeah. Hathaway, again, as we mentioned, she is a great actress. Mm-hmm. So anytime that she's in something, you do know that she's going to bring a lot to the role just like christian bale does in anything that he's in yeah. but you can only go so far uh when the writing isn't there sometimes so right i i would far be it from me to ever be strongly critical of interstellar at all it's a great film in its own right but sometimes with the writing things happen and yeah. you know characters aren't always the strongest part right of course you know interstellar you know she was cast in that kind of right off right off the heels of dark knight rises you know just a couple years later mm-hmm. And speaking of actors that, you know, Nolan likes to continue working with after they've collaborated once, we have two more in this movie after or shortly after like where we're at in the movie, we were introduced to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, John Blake, who's a police officer. Um, You know, he's in this movie coming off being an inception in 2010. Same with Cotillard, also an inception. It's just, you know so many examples of nolan obviously like when he works with somebody and he likes likes working with them like he keeps going back to the to the same actors a lot which i enjoy especially michael kane like i love that he's like a constant in most oh, yeah. movies even though some you know sometimes the parts fairly small you know it's it's kind of cool to see how often these people collaborate together and at one point it obviously shows you that nolan really likes the way that these actors work, but also that they clearly like working with him as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I know we talked some about in, uh, I think it was the Batman begins episode. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been described before as being, uh, I, they use this term with directors a lot, but with being an actor's director, you know, he, yeah. he understands them. He takes the time to listen to them. He lets them play yeah. and, and he builds relationships with them. You can, you can see a lot of that, especially, you know, this year with the release of Oppenheimer, 
Mm-hmm. If you if you watch, you know, any number of interviews with the actors, especially people that he uses for the first time or people he's used repeatedly, especially Killian Murphy, they will go back and they they speak about him as if that's their friend, even after that first time of working with him. And so when right. when someone can do that, especially as the the leader on a set, can really just not be the one to not just be the one to call cut and you know give corrections to to mistakes and during a during a scene or a take. And they can just really work with the actors. I, I think it was it was the last film. It was the, the Dark Knight where the first eight days of filming, Nolan had the actors come in and they would just straight up just watch two movies a day together. And that's all they did. Oh, yeah. So they didn't even film. Just the first eight days of production was just they'd come in. He had two movies for them to watch and they'd watch it as a group and talk about it. And then they'd get to work after that. But, yeah, you know, so there's he has intention and purpose to the things that he's doing and with the people that he's choosing, like you said, to bring back, it's not just because he likes their acting, but he knows that he can work with them, that they'll take the direction they need to and that he can trust them with the characters that he's written. Yeah. So we, we finally go back to the bat cave. We have, you know, rebuilt Wayne Manor, obviously. And along with that, we're back down into like the caves underneath Wayne Manor. We've got, back into like you know the like the waterfalls and all that stuff and we get this great scene between alfred and bruce where alfred is like really trying to talk bruce out of bringing back the batman because Mm -hmm. he understands what what that will likely ultimately mean for bruce and so yeah what did you think about this scene obviously having you know having watched the whole film you know obviously what this scene is specifically talking about. And there's a lot of foreshadowing that happens in this, in especially Alfred's monologue itself. And it's so, it's so endearing to Alfred himself, but it shows a lot about the two characters, how there's still, there's still a certain amount of growth that hasn't happened in Bruce. Mm -hmm. There's still a way that he sees things in sometimes almost a, maybe a hopeful, naive way, but also in a bit of a prideful way where he's not always thinking through things he's he's reacting a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so so in you know in this specific exchange between the two of them you can just feel that Alfred's just emotionally he's just tired, you know, and he mm-hmm. and he and he cares so deeply for Bruce and he wants something for him and he's just trying to like give it to him just like this is exactly what I want for you. Let me spell it out for you. Right. I you know, I hurt for you. So it really I, I love that that throughout the film they kind of use that and kind of keep it at the back of your mind is that it's what he wants for Bruce and they kind of use it as a callback later on in a way that we'll talk about later. Right. But again, I think it really we've always said this about Alfred, it really solidifies the fact that Michael Caine brings so much to the role of Alfred. And it really Christopher Nolan and the other writers and the people that crafted the story, they really solidify Alfred as like Bruce's constant throughout the film, but also just kind of the constant throughout the trilogy. Yeah. The, you know, that, that anchoring point that he really, he sees so much more than Bruce gives him credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We get the, I, I wanted to go back. I kind of forgot. We were talking about Anne Hathaway, you know, her introduction in that scene where she goes to the room to deliver Bruce's food and he finds her like snooping around and just like right. her, yeah. her performance in that scene where she goes from like, being like the scared, nervous maid to just being like, oops. And then she just like completely changes. And she does that so many times throughout the film where she she's does. Like, yeah. 
acting like she's one person, but like who she really is is like this like you know confident, sly, obviously like physically very agile, you know, capable thief. But the way she does like the backflip out of the window when she leaves. Yeah. Us. But then that takes us to where she's she's kidnapped the congressman and is bringing her with because she's got fingerprints and we get the scene with her and the is it Borman Gorman uh the other guy that's kind of working with Daggett yep and the, really the main takeaway I have from this scene is we get Keila I couldn't <laughs> believe it when she walked in the room or like her friend is like oh my gosh it's Keely it's Keely yeah that I you know had no memory of that being her from from this movie after watching Ted Lasso but that was yeah Whenever I see her in anything and she's got an American accent, it's always so jarring because I expect that Cockney British accent to come right out of her. But right, yeah, you couldn't even you couldn't hear it one bit in this film. No, yeah, she did she did well with the American accent. Yeah, and this is another another moment where we see Selena. You know, after she like starts beating people up, but one as soon as the police break into that room, she starts screaming like she's just a victim, like you know she's she's there by accident, she's afraid or whatever. Right. Uh, and she's able to uh, to get away. We kind of get introduced to Blake, and we we immediately see that he's like kind of like another Gordon, where he's like an uncompromising, will always want to do the right thing, you know. And he gets what's his name Foley, the the chief or whatever he is, calls him a hothead because he's mm-hmm. like very ambitious, but because he wants to, you know, he wants to be a great cop. And then we see where he goes to wayne manor and it's an interesting scene because then he's just like yeah i know who you are and mm-hmm. he kind of explains how curious how you felt like listening to him tell that story like do you do you feel like it was a a satisfying justifiable way of explaining like how he just knew that bruce wayne was batman yeah and i i think it, it made sense especially when he talks about where he came from that the the home for, I don't want to say orphans, but I guess you call it the orphanage. Yeah, the boy. Where he grew up, you know, that's obviously that's where he first spots Bruce Wayne and kind of probably follows him in his his career and his life after that. And so it would make sense for somebody who's watching him so closely to be able to kind of see maybe the different points in where Bruce goes and Batman shows up and all those kinds of things and might have even been might have even been part of the catalyst as to why he became a police officer in that mm-hmm. regard, just thinking that he could help out or do something similar. But yeah, I, I thought it really showed that he's got similarities, you know, and things that he can relate to, to, to Bruce in mm-hmm. itself. And he's got, and then Bruce can kind of, it uses that to say that he's got some of the idealism of Gordon and, and Bruce in that way. So like immediately Bruce Wayne doesn't dismiss him after hearing that story. He doesn't try to like deny it you know, he, he lets him, he lets him have that. And yeah, um, kind of sees how that would benefit him as being able to have hope and carry hope forward as things are going to get worse here. Yeah. You gotta learn to hide the anger and practice smiling in a mirror. It's like putting on a mask. And of course, as he ends up being the catalyst that leads Bruce to, you know, bring back the Batman, because he—I mean, that's he—that's why he goes there. He's like, "We need you because things are things are starting to turn again," and so that that leads to Bruce going to the doctor, and we get Tom Lennon as the doctor telling him he has yeah. 
knee and all these other issues. Of course, the main reason he does that, though, is because he's trying to go see Gordon, who I guess, you know, we haven't kind of didn't really have much to say about that scene. But, you know, he's gone. He he got captured and taken to Bane. He got oh, shot. Oh, that's right. Yep. I think it was in the leg. When he's like, he go gets washed out of the shoe out of the sewer, and that's you know Blake finds him there, but then you know we get Bruce is trying to go to the hospital to see Gordon, and I thought it was interesting that he he puts a mask on, but he doesn't use the the Batman voice, and mm-hmm. I guess maybe because Gordon's so hopped up on pain meds, like he doesn't really he right. doesn't notice, but you know Gordon is obviously like he's he understands too, like yeah we need we need the Batman back. right. When he says he he says he must come back, and he's saying it like you said so breathlessly because he's still got the oxygen mask and pain medication too. Yeah. But I remember I remember that scene being in the in the trailer quite a bit and really pushing. There's a lot of speculation. Like, well, hold on, hold on. Does does Gordon die in this one? Yeah. Because with bringing a trilogy to a closure, I mean, a lot of people are guessing on who's going to die. Right. And so there's a little bit of speculation on. Okay, it looks like he's kind of hanging on for dear life here. Yeah, you could have seen that happening. Like it, it could have been a if done in the right way, a, not a not the worst way to bring closure to that character. But I mean, I'm I'm glad that they didn't kill him off and right back. Yeah, you know, we talked about the the Bruce Selena dynamic, and I think a, another example of that is their chemistry in the the gala or the like the masquerade ball scene. You know, we of course we this is when we're introduced to. Miranda Tate they have that they have a conversation but the best part is is Bruce and Selena having their you know they're dancing and talking and I thought it was a just a, another good example of their chemistry yeah and I, and I love how they're using all of this to not really just throw Batman back into the film but it really is a, a process of Bruce kind of slowly being pulled back in in a way you know from the very start with his first interaction with Selena there and the and the pearls being taken but then with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character coming in and like asking him to come back and then him visiting Gordon in the hospital and finally this like gala scene where he's he's feeling the full weight of Gotham's in trouble again. Mm-hmm. There's something coming and she she has a lot of lines in this here. Yeah, the storm's coming. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. You and your friends better batten down the hatches because when it hits... You're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. And yeah, a, a reference. I mean, you, you talked about this, but there's, you know, the, the masks being worn at the gala itself. Yeah, he's the only one that doesn't wear a mask. And it, it kind of like a alluding to the fact that Bruce Wayne is his alter ego and like Batman is is really his true identity. Because And then she even, you know, they say... Or she says, like, who are you pretending to be? And he says, Bruce Wayne, eccentric billionaire. Like, Bruce Wayne, eccentric billionaire. Fairly on the nose. Like, he's the Bruce Wayne persona that he puts on publicly is is not his real identity. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's the Bruce that only a few people see privately, like Alfred or Rachel or even, you know, Selena eventually. And I guess Miranda to a degree. You know, the Batman, like, that is his his true self. Yep. And then he goes to see Lucius and it's, it's almost as if he's like, you know, he uses it as a, as a, as a mask as well, because when he went to the hospital, like you said, like he went supposedly for the knee appointment, but really he was going to see Gordon. 
Yeah. And then here, here he's going to see Lucius to kind of get a checkup on his finances and find out where his money has gone. Mm-hmm. And Lucius, I, you know, I love the fact that Lucius Fox, you know, he knew that he's kind of on his way to becoming Batman again, bringing that back. And yeah. so he doesn't let him leave without showing him something. Right. He's just like, let me show you anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I retired. Well, let me show you some stuff anyway. And I, I was, I almost wondered, like, if the way they wrote that in the script, like, was Bruce kind of like wanting him to, but not really saying it, you know, just kind of wondering, is he gonna, is he, is he, if he, if Lucius shows me something, then I'll come back as Batman. If you know, if he, yeah, but I'm not gonna ask for it, right? And then he shows him the bat, and he's, you know, he's yeah. Like, oh, now you're just showing off. And yes, it does come in black. And yes, Mister Wayne, it does come in black. Another nice callback, but yeah, that was uh, that seemed to be the thing that finally like put him over the top. Like, okay, if I get to fly this thing around, then I'm definitely coming back because this thing looks right. Um, yeah, of course we get another another foreshadowing with the whole autopilot thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that comes back in the end. Yeah, uh, well, I love that thing that Fox says too. You know, like you said, you got the the autopilot thing and and the way that that really gives you hope at the end of the film when everything seems kind of lost. And then another thing that he says that brings in a lot of foreshadowing is he says that he started consolidating all of the prototypes for stuff under one roof to keep them from falling into the wrong hands. (laughs) Years I've been shuttering and consolidating all the different prototypes under one roof. My roof. My. Keep them from falling into the wrong hands. And then what happens later? Literally, they fall through the floor into the wrong hands into the wrong hands yeah bad idea yeah and, and of course you know at the end we realize the way that they are able to figure all that stuff out is because Miranda Tate is really Talia al Ghul and she's bad so they you know have figured out they know where all that stuff is they know where to you know blow up the floor so they get access to all the the stuff that is you know, mostly Batman stuff or should be, but they're able to get their hands on it because they have a, you know, an inside, somebody on the inside. We get another great moment between Bruce and Alfred where I love the line where he says, you know, he's, you're afraid that if I go back out there, I'll fail. And Alfred says, no, I'm afraid that you want to. That time has passed. You're afraid that if I go back out there, I'll fail. I'm afraid. If you want to. Mm. This idea where Bruce, because he's so unhappy as Bruce, because he's still holding on to the idea that if Rachel hadn't died, they would be together, that he's part of why he's wanting to bring back the Batman because he kind of sees it as a way out. Like, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. Alfred is like, you should hear the rumors about Bane. And he just explains of how, how big, how difficult of a foe Bane is going to be to deal with. And Bruce is like, I'll be fine. But Alfred can kind of see through that and see like, it's almost like he has a death wish just by right out there and, and fight Bane because he he's so unhappy in his quote unquote normal life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just another, another way that like Alfred's just come on, like trying, just trying to pull him out of it, just trying to pull him out of it. And repeatedly Bruce is not hearing it, you know, caught up in his, in his own, his own thoughts about it. And like I said, in a bit of pride, I would think. 
Yeah, for sure. We get a nice little coin flip reference at the beginning of the stock exchange scene. Um, yep. You know, nice little callback to Two Face and Glenn yeah. Powell before he really kind of took off. Oh, I know. Yeah, I like. He was one of those guys where you you just pointed the screen like I know who that is. I recognize yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who is that guy? I was like, oh yeah, he was in Top Gun Maverick because we just watched that this summer. We yeah. were you're late on that, but yeah, that was uh, that was kind of fun. Funny seeing him be like, oh yeah, he was in this. And there's at least one more of those too that comes later. There is, yeah. And so then finally, I think somewhere around 45 minutes into the movie, into this Batman movie, we finally get Batman. Mm-hmm. He's back. You know, he's it's in this this chase scene after Bane and his you know flunkies leave the stock exchange and they're you know messing with the trades and stuff to try and help Daggett get control of Wayne Enterprises and. Uh, as uh, Mr. Earl would say in Batman Begins, it's all very technical. But uh, this this is a really cool scene. You, know, you got that one older cop with the younger guy, and he's like, oh, man, you're in for a show, son. Like, it's been eight years since Batman's been doing this. And at least there's, you know, you would think most of the police who are, who are there now, Foley being obviously a big exception, would be happy to have Batman back. You'd hope. I guess it depends, because obviously a lot of them think that Batman really did kill Harvey Dent, but this one officer at least is clearly excited to have Batman back because he knows like how much he can help if he is, you know, fighting against the the same people that they're trying to fight against. Right. I love how almost like like you said the music comes in and then immediately as soon as the chase goes into the tunnels, you kind of like get a sense of like this is probably where the Batman's going to come in. Yeah. You know. And then he starts shooting the lights out. Yep. And or at least using some kind of device, lights go go out, and you know, almost similar to when the tumbler was being kind of hidden in broad daylight as he was trying to make his way back to the Batcave, and Batman begins. Yeah, because because the lights go out, and then you just hear the Bat Pod go by. Right. I thought that was I thought that was so cool. So uh, such a a cool way cinematically to kind of bring it back in and kind of bring Batman back into the action. Yeah, and I I wonder does he. Obviously, we saw like when the Bat Pod was introduced in the Dark Knight because the Tumblr was sig- severely damaged. Mm-hmm. I wonder if like does he have a Tumblr? Like, did he get another Tumblr? Because obviously, Bane and his people they get all the rest of the Tumblers that are still there at right. Wayne. Or if Bruce still has one, or if he just has the Bat Pod, and then of course you know now the Bat as well. Um, right. But I mean, yeah, I was just curious about that. I mean. Yeah, I mean, the tumblers that we do see are all painted, or not painted, they're in military colors, you know, camouflaged right. in a way. And Fox did refer to them as prototypes, as part of the prototype lot that he had kind of under his roof. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I don't know if, if after it was destroyed, if Bruce didn't really have a reason to get another one in black. Yeah, know. that's true, because he, you know, stopped being Batman after that. So, right. Yeah, he might have just... Just used the Lamborghini after that. Yeah, the Lamborghini and the Bat Pod and then the, the Bat. It's interesting, uh, Chief Foley or Papa <laughs> from Stranger, Stranger Things. Matthew Modine, you know, he he obviously, he sees this as, a, as an opportunity with kind of selfish ambition to take down the Batman, you know, something that Jim Gordon never could as what he says to, uh, to Blake. And Blake is able to see what's really like, so we're going to let these criminals go who just robbed or like, you know, did their whole stunt at the stock exchange just to try and catch the Batman. 
who is also chasing the people that we should be chasing. And so, you you know, you can obviously see that Blake just gets it on a Jim Gordon level in a way that Foley just doesn't. And obviously that his whole thing kind of comes back towards the end of the movie. But right now he's almost kind of like a, he's not a bad guy, but he's not a likable guy. No. And he's almost an obstacle to the things that are needing to be done. You know, yeah. he's kind of just getting in the way. And Gordon sees that. But Gordon also probably has hope for him, too, I'm sure, if he knows him as a person. Yeah. So, I mean, during that chasing, obviously, like, you got you got his view of how things are going. And he's just simply so focused on just, like, just getting the Batman. Just doing what Gordon couldn't do. Just getting the guy who got Den. And so they, they chase him down. You have a lot of cool stuff with, happening with the Batpod. And Batman really, he's on his own mission and he finds out what he needs to know. And now he's just trying to get away. Right. And then drives the bat pod straight into that alley. And if you and if you'd seen any of the trailers, you kind of know what's coming already. But right. the the reveal of the bat in action was really cool. It was. You know, the another like Modine obviously is not a Batman fan, but he's like, if he's going in that alley or whatever he says, he's like, and then he's as dumb as his outfit or something. Like a rat in a trap, gentlemen. Because that's where he's got the bat parked. And he's able to get away pretty easily in that. I, I felt like there was times where I thought, you know, I wondered how they pulled off the bat. Um, and I read it's like a lot of times where they it was like suspended on cables and stuff like that. Um, but I, I thought there were a couple of times where I thought, I wonder if they had like a miniature of that, that they then like superimposed mm. on their shots of the city and stuff. I didn't read anything that confirmed that, but it's just kind of what I thought a couple of times. I, I thought overall the bat was was pretty cool a lot of the the scenes where it's flying around i thought looked pretty good um but what about you yeah for the most part i mean you know going on the miniature thing like i couldn't really tell if they were using a miniature or not and most of the things that i read did seem to make me believe that it was a full-size model or a full-size unit that they were carrying around you know whether they were having it move on a crane or it was being helicoptered around or whatever for the most part it was a. I thought it was a great take on the on the bat compared to what's in animated series or in other films mm-hmm. of what the bat pod is. You know, and it, previously they've made the bat pod kind of look like a just like a jet. You know, that's got special wings. Right. But wings the fact that it's the bat. So. Yeah. And so you know, kind of how they did with the tumbler, like they didn't seek to kind of make it look bat like. It's just mm-hmm. called that because Batman flies it around, and that's the nickname he gives it. But it's you know i thought it was well done to kind of have it drone like yeah and so so the way it moves i guess you could kind of say is drone like you could kind of tell sometimes the movements were a little jittery in a way yeah and so i don't know if that was because it was you know it was suspended and they were just kind of moving it around like a toy or if just that's the way the bat pod was and that's the way they wanted it to be but i like that for the most part it was practical i i couldn't really identify any scenes where they were using cgi with it you know, maybe in some like the far off scenes, but for the most part, when it's up close and when they're in it and when they're, you know, flying in the low parts of the city, that was done practically. And I thought for the most part, I thought that was done very well. Yeah, I did too. It was just, it was a fun addition, you know, with each movie, like in the first movie, it's the tumbler, and then the second movie, we get the bat pod. And now this movie, we get the bat. And it is, it's kind of just a fun way to kind of keep, you know, evolving his, his, what's the word I'm looking for? His, uh, not weaponry, but, I don't know. The stuff that he has is at his disposal to help him do what he's trying to do. I thought that was a fun, fun thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throughout throughout this film, you've got a lot of things introduced that they do very well. And then you like you've we've talked about this throughout all of the films. Nolan's almost he's not the he's the king of callbacks. And he's the 
King in these films, at least, of foreshadowing. He, you know, he loves doing it, and he loves doing it where he can. Right. And one of the things that he says is, I, I, I forget the exchange. I think it's a Alfred and Bruce thing. I think it's they're in the caves, and they're talking about Bane a little bit. And Bruce says, "One man's tool is another man's weapon." They would if you gave them to them. One man's tool is another man's weapon. Yeah, Alfred's calling him out on you know basically putting on a show on the news again, like because of his return, and you know it's like the police could stop him if you would give him the tools. Like instead of using all this stuff as Batman, like why not give it to the police to help them? Right. And, and that's yeah. you know, like one man's tool is another man's weapon. You know, if any of that stuff falls into the wrong hands, then obviously it could be very costly. And he does, you know, he doesn't even know that he, what he could be talking about is that reactor that he's built, that fusion reactor to help the environment is the thing that they're centering on. He's, there's a lot of attention about it at Wayne Enterprises and a lot of people know about it. But obviously we see later on it's his tool that is later used as a weapon. Yep. Yeah, he hands it over to the very person that is planning on using it that way. To mm -hmm. begin. Um, but then that that conversation leads into another leads into another interaction between uh, Alfred and Bruce here that we don't really like. It's such a heartbreaking scene. You know, you know that Alfred, like you said before, he's always had nothing but Bruce's best interests in mind. He wants what's best for Bruce Wayne, and he he can see that like continuing on as the Batman is just it's not going to lead anywhere good for him and you know of course bruce of course brings up rachel it's like it's been eight years man like move on <laughs> <laughs> i have already expressed how we don't love the the bruce rachel relationship and uh you know but rachel said in the dark knight don't make me your one hope for a normal life but that's exactly what he did like eight years yeah. later you can see he's still hanging on to that like that was his ticket out to be normal and just be able to live happily ever after with Rachel. And because she died, he's just living in misery, basically. Well, it's just, it's just sad that that's, that's the thing that causes him to look at Alfred in a ne negative light because Alfred was looking out for his best and Alfred, yes, he hid something from him. He didn't really deliberately lie to him, but you know, he, he kind of saved him from himself for a bit during those parts of the dark night. And then as soon as he reveals it, like, that's the thing that sets you off, Bruce. That thing about Rachel, like, come on, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and he was, he was just, as he said, he's to spare him pain he mm -hmm. him, so that Bruce could hold on to that idea that Rachel was going to be with him. But obviously Alfred didn't realize that that would just send Bruce into this spiral where no, no other possible life could live up to you know, the fantasy he had in his mind that Rachel was going to be with him and they would be able to ride off into the sunset and leave Batman behind. Yeah. And he basically, you know, like, and Alfred basically like leaving is the only thing I have left. If, if it will help to save your life, then that's what I will do. You know, he, he mentions like, he's the person I've, from the moment that I heard your cries, you know, echo throughout the, the house. Like I've, you know, I've done nothing but love you and care for you. And, Leaving is is the last thing, the last part he has to play to try and get Bruce to realize right. that he's headed down a bad road. Leaving is all I have to make you understand. It means your hatred, and it also means losing someone that I have cared for since I first heard his cries echo 
through this house. But it might also mean saving your life. And that is more important. Yeah, and I think part of the reason they probably did that in the way that they did between Bruce and Alfred, even though it was heartbreaking, was to show Alfred for who he is still and his constant nature in Bruce's life, but also to show the fact that Bruce, he still, he's, he is not perfect. He still has growth to do and he's still got wisdom to grow into. And so there's, there's still character development to be done for the character in this film. Yeah. And, you know, I know that, you know, Batman in general, not just in these movies, but usually he tries to avoid like having a, any sort of committed relationship because he doesn't really want anything to like pull him away from or distract him from being Batman and, and what he has to do in that role. Uh, obviously this Bruce is, is a little bit different from that, but like you said, it's kind of, he's kind of irrational and he's far from perfect. But of course we should say like this scene was acted so well between the two of them. Like as sad as it is to watch, like the acting performances are excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. I mean, I would, I would, if it was a, who to give the award to in this scene, I would lean towards Michael Caine, but it's hard not to in any of his roles. Oh yeah. So there's a lot that happens after this, as far as like what happens in Gotham. I mean, you got the fact that now, I mean, both Lucius and after the stock exchange scene and Batman, you know, he comes over to Wayne Manor and they've kind of got sort of an idea of what Bane's trying to do here a little bit or what, what how he's going to force their hand in a way. Yeah, we've got this, they realize with like the trading that happened, it's like, you know, again, technical stuff that I don't really understand, but like they're like doubling down on the futures that basically bankrupt Bruce Wayne, but it's all in an attempt to, for Daggett to take control of Wayne Enterprises, but then instead they get Miranda to take over, which because they think that she is trustworthy and has, you know, similar vision for the for the direction that Wayne Enterprises will go, but uh, they were incorrect. Yeah, and sets Daggett off, and then it sets him into that little that little meeting that he has with Bane when he shows up at his place. Yes. Speak of the devil, and he shall appear. Speak of the devil, and he shall appear. And Bane tries to dismiss Daggett's men, and he goes, nope. And he goes, no, I'm in charge. And then he just puts his hand on his shoulder, and, and he goes, do you feel in charge? No, you stay here. I'm in charge. Do you feel in charge? Yes, I love that too. So good. And then he's like, like just Ben Mendelsohn does a great job in that scene. Just becoming mm -hmm. in this like angry CEO wannabe to being just like, so you can just see him like melt because he, yeah. he kind of knows what's coming. And Bane obviously disposes of him very quickly. R.I.P. John Daggett, another one. And I and I for, I forget the exact way or how Bane uses it, but there's two terms that he kind of tosses around in a in a following scene that are very much a part of the League of Shadows terminology. You know, after after he kills Daggett, the next thing I remember seeing Bane is when Batman and Selina are like they're fighting the guys on the rooftop. And Bane shows up kind of at the very end as they're getting away, basically. But yeah, we do we do see a lot of like connections to like some of the things that they say are very much in line with the things that Ra's al Ghul was saying in Batman Begins about mm -hmm. 
know, Gotham's reckoning and doing what's necessary, which, you know, Miranda says that line as well later on that, you know, once like when when you're watching the movie for a second or beyond a second time, like it's not, it almost seems so obvious, like, oh, yeah, she's saying exactly what her father would have said. But it's, you know, cool little little hints of what's coming. I think it sorry to call back to that. I think it's in the scene where he is with Daggett, where before he kills him, Daggett asks, who are you? And he said, I am Gotham's Reckoning. Oh, yes, that's right. And he talks about being a necessary evil. Yeah. What are you? I'm Gotham's Reckoning. Here to end the borrowed time you've all been living on. You are pure evil. I'm necessary evil. The League of Shadows term of being necessary. Yeah. Doing what's necessary. Right. So then we get to that scene of Batman and Selina fighting together you know selena's there by by herself batman shows up and then we get the lines where it's like no guns no killing and i don't know why like it seems so obvious to me now but it just kind of occurred to me like of course part of the reason he doesn't want to use guns or kill anybody is because that's exactly what happened to his parents which led him on this path to become the batman like he you know obviously they were killed by a gun and i for some reason like that never quite fully connected in my mind of like, that's why he doesn't want to kill or that's why he doesn't want to use guns. But it seems so obvious now. Yeah. I I've never really thought about that as being part of the reason, but I'm sure it's, you know, a certain percentage of the reason for why he withholds in that way. You know, whether it's also for like internally, he also doesn't truly believe in killing. Yeah. You know, he doesn't see death as a means of, of saving anybody or, or stopping crime. It, It would just be adding to it in his way. I also wondered if there was part of it that had to do with not making anything traceable, but. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it could be. But we we do obviously in the first one, we see so much made about the fact that his parents were both shot right in front of him. So there could be quite a bit of trauma attached to attached to that as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, So we see uh, Blake ends up getting promoted to detective despite being a hothead because, you know, Gordon and him, obviously, again, they're like, you know, two peas in a pod, like the way that they're looking at everything that's going on. Foley is still not on board. Yeah, he's just he's not seeing what's really going on. And then we get this scene where Bruce comes back to Wayne Manor and he can't even get in because he's never needed a key before. And Alfred's gone because of, you know, what we the previous scene between them. So but then Miranda's there, too. So they end up, you know, sleeping together and at first, I was kind of thinking, oh, this is kind of another like unearned moment. But then I was like, well, I guess it makes sense because it's not it's not genuine. Like she has an ulterior motive, and he's obviously very vulnerable because of like you know he just lost Alfred. He's and that all stemmed from his feelings about Rachel. And at first, I was thinking like, did you know we see how how much he looks into Selena Kyle as soon as he knows that she exists. We see how much he's like looking into Harvey Dent and the Dark Knight and following like what he and Rachel are doing. Like, did he not look into Miranda Tate at all? Like when they first kind of started having that business relationship where they built the reactor and all that stuff. Like, I don't Mm. know. That was the one part I was like, doesn't quite track for me. But again, it just kind of, it does show Bruce's humanity and that he's not perfect. And it might show a little also a bit of his disconnect over the past eight years because I don't know when she came on board or how she came on board as far as being the CEO, if it was him or Lucius being the one that hired her and sought her out in a way, but somehow she flew under the radar 
And I, I feel like part of it would have to be due to the fact that in this time span of eight years, he was just so disconnected from what was happening at the at, the, at his foundation. Yeah. Or it could be, at least. Could be. But again, it shows like his, like you said, his, his humanity, possibly his weakness, his vulnerability is out there. He can't really see her ulterior motive because of those things. And that might've been another part of him that really needed to be broken down. Yeah. We get to me, one of the more memorable scenes of the movie shortly after that, where Bruce, you know, he leaves Miranda, you know, she's like, let's leave on a plane. And he's like, not tonight. And he leaves to go meet up with Selena because he's like, yeah, we've got the, like the clean slate thing, but you need to lead me to Bane. And she does. And at first it's pretty cool the way the two of them are working together to get through like they're the guards down in the tunnels, especially that scene where like, it's like the flashing light from the shooting and like oh, yeah. showing up in different spots until he's like right there in front of him and takes him out. But then we get, you know, Batman and Bane meet for the first time. And this is a great scene, but it's also pretty brutal to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're watching like this hero that you've had built up for, for so long in these films just get decimated. Yeah. I mean, having no chance, no chance in this fight whatsoever. And Bane is just coming at him with such, with such force and ferocity. And, and then obviously spewing, some of the greatest one-liners in the film towards Bruce, just really not only defeating him physically, but man, just defeating him mentally too. Oh yeah. Yeah. The line, your victory has defeated you. Like is so good. Victory has defeated you. You know, Batman doesn't even bother trying to like talk to him. He just kind of immediately starts going at him and fighting and Bane. It's like, it's not even, it's not even a fair fight. Like Bane doesn't, it's like, he's, it's so unevenly matched and uh you know batman tries his his tricks he does the thing with the, like the little smoke or whatever and he's like ah theatricality like effective for the uninitiated but obviously he's he was part of the league of shadows so like none of that stuff is going to take bane by surprise theatricality and deception powerful agents to the uninitiated but we are initiated aren't we bruce and then, uh, you know, you think darkness is your ally. Uh, you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. Oh, you think darkness is your ally. You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. Molded by it. And then I thought the way they shot that was cool because he's kind of looking around and then all of a sudden, like, Batman's there and he knows immediately, grabs him and just mm. starts beaten up on him again so again a very well done scene just hard to watch because like you said it's like batman is like he's batman he can't lose like this and even you even see it in selena's face you know this is where she finds out that that bruce wayne is batman because bane has figured it out somehow and it's just tough to watch i mean especially that part where he's like he's got him down on the ground and he's just beating him in the head and breaking the cowl yeah, it's obviously kind of symbolic, like the, you know, the broken cowl just kind of showing just the devastating effect. Yeah. Well, and him and him really just breaking his mask, like symbolically in a way, like you said, like just taking that right off. It's not even a defense for you anymore. You can't hide behind this. Yeah, yeah. And then that line of, I wonder what would break first, your spirit or your body? 
I was wondering what would break first. Oh, yeah, just and, like a twig over his knee. Yep, and then just walks away. Yep, yeah, really well done, but really tough. Yeah, and it really, I mean, that scene itself, it, it breaks Bruce, but it also kind of gives, the, like for us as the audience, kind of like slows things down for a second. Like he's being, you know, he's taken to the prison, he's taken to the pit, and for a second, like there, the action is slowed down. Things kind of have to play their play themselves out and have to take this course out. But yeah, I do love, you know, I mean, like Bane's, he knows what needs to be done. And so he's not in a hurry. He even like goes to the prisoner pit to speak with him. Right. Yeah. That's another great scene. Another, a lot of, you know, a lot of Bane's dialogue is just so good. Um, and part of it is just Hardy's delivery of the lines, but you know, like the, your punishment must be more severe, but not of your body, of your soul. Your punishment must be more severe. Torture. Yeah. But not of your body. Of your soul. He's like, he's really, he's just, he's trying to break Batman or Bruce Wayne down. Not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, you know, he's he's forcing him to sit there with a broken body watching the devastation of Gotham on a TV where it's like he's helpless to do anything about it. But obviously it ends up backfiring because it's the one thing that could give Bruce the motivation to build himself back up to get out of there. Yeah, and we, and we learn a lot, you know, especially with within that prison and all these things. But I mean, just just speaking of something that I feel like if anybody's listening, they're being tired of this, of us saying this, but Nolan does the callbacks thing. And if you're thinking about the trilogy in itself and it's full circle type of thing, you know, the, the way that he's utilizing the league of shadow still and Ra's al Ghul and not just leaving that, like that's a one-off in Batman begins, but really the, the scope of vision of destruction that the league of shadows and Ra's al Ghul had for Gotham was like, that's a, that's a big thing. That's not just like a Joker targeting Batman type of thing and chaos, but that's like, that's a vision that could be run with, you know, with anybody could take up the mantle of and run with and truly see, see about here. And so, you know, I love the fact that that's just bringing back, like there were those in the league of shadows that weren't gone even after Ra's al Ghul was gone. And we have that brought to fruition in, in Miranda Tate and in Bane just coming back and saying like, no, Gotham, we're not done with Gotham. Just because you got, you know, some people out of the way, it's still coming. You know, like, like Selena Kyle says, the, the, the storm is still coming. And so I thought it was a great way for Nolan to decide for himself that this is how we're going to bring the trilogy to a close to kind of show that they've got to cut off the League of Shadows. They've got to really stamp it out and be done with it. Otherwise, it's just going to keep coming back like it is here. Yeah, makes sense to to kind of bring it all back that way instead of just, you know, you could follow the pattern of like, okay, new movie, new villain, and then they're defeated in the end. Then the next one, new movie, new villain, they're defeated in the end. Just follow that pattern over and over again. But it is nice to have like a fully developed story that, you know, kind of almost kind of go back to where you began and... And, you know, like we talked about earlier, bring closure to the characters and have these like repeated themes throughout instead of, you know, having it's almost like, a, you know, in a, a, a procedural show, like a law and order, like, you know, it's just like the same thing every week, just with different characters and a different style of crime. But you don't get as much of like the 
storylines that go through all the episodes of you know like showing the characters developing and stuff but yeah there's there's literally so much to unpack here in this film and things that we haven't even gotten to yet but i i think as we kind of talked about with the with the dark knight that this is this is this goes more than just one episode of this podcast so there there's a lot more to come and more to talk about but for now i think i think we're going to take a break right here before we dive further into what comes next for for our beloved Batman here. Yeah, long movie, long podcast. And, you know, aside from having the rest of the movie to break down, you know, we'll have some all like some clothing closing thoughts on the trilogy as a whole as well. So yeah, we we'll want to make sure we got plenty of time to do that. So we'll we'll pick it back up in our next episode for part two of The Dark Knight Rises. Until then, we are glad that you're with us. Here at the end of this podcast. Mm-hmm.